Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Dr. Susie Solomon. She was an independent pharmacy owner and also graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago, has over 75 publications to her name, and has taught at a litany of places. Susie, welcome to the podcast, and is there anything else you want to kind of inform the listeners about yourself? Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. I founded Pharmacist Moms, too. That's something else that I've done. I'm a pharmacist. I've been a pharmacist for the past 16 years and done a a bunch of different things throughout my career. And so I'm really excited today to talk a little bit more about independent pharmacy ownership, you know, with you. I think it's something that I get a lot of questions on all the time. So I'm really excited to do this podcast today. I'm sorry I left off Pharmacist Moms there. I actually have several of your followers who listen to this and told me that they wanted to get you on here to kind of explain some of your thoughts, which is kind of how it led me to you. So sorry for leaving that off there. No, that's okay. Don't worry. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. Yeah, the reason I wanted you on here today was you had shared some posts about pharmacy ownership. And I thought being a mom was something that a lot of people can obviously relate to. But then pharmacy ownership, we all know is a huge burden on top of everything else you do. So it's kind of amazing the way that you've balanced that and kind of shifted your career in and out of around pharmacy, I should say, that has really been like a good role model for a lot of people. So I thought it was awesome to get you on here for that. Obviously, you know, you do so much on top of when you were a pharmacist owner, which was always been a life goal of a lot of pharmacists to kind of own our own pharmacy and have our own destiny in our hands. What made you want to take on the challenge of owning your own pharmacy? So I never thought that I was going to own a pharmacy. I never really considered it as an option. I just always assumed you work for a chain, the chains own everything. You know, how how could someone even do it? But what happened to me is probably a little bit unique in the sense that I was living in Chicago at the time and I was the assistant dean at University of Illinois. I loved my job. I truly enjoyed what I was doing. It was I mean, I love that. I loved what I was doing. But I had moved out to the East Coast and I moved up to North Jersey. There really wasn't any pharmacy school less than an hour away. So it was for me more of a decision that I was like, you know, I need to do something. I love pharmacy. But what can I do that's unique? And so at the time, I figured, you know, let me look into an independent pharmacy. There wasn't one in this area that I opened. Um, There were a couple chains. And I remember going to those chains and the wait times were like three hours. I was a new mom. You know, my, my son was pretty young. And and I remember waiting just to get an antibiotic, like a really long time, like almost two hours. And I was like, you know, something needs to be done in this area. So that's when I decided that I was going to look further into how to open up a pharmacy. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of funny. I had Lily's pharmacy on here, Michael Shannon earlier, and he's actually not a pharmacist. His wife is, but they had a similar experience and that's why they opened their independent pharmacy down there in Georgia. And so I think that's kind of interesting that I guess hell hath no fury, but when a, when a woman feels like doing it and puts her mind to it, she can even open her own pharmacy these days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, it's almost like it's just what happened. You know, I'm like, wait, I cannot wait this long. I know it doesn't take this long to get medication. And so from that point, I guess, is when I when I developed the interest and then I, I started to research it and learn more. For me in pharmacy school, I actually didn't recall learning much about how to open up a, a pharmacy, you know, in terms of like contracts, PSAO contracts, um, you know, where you're going to get your inventory from, where you're, how you're going to even open it in terms of financing one, because you need cash and you need money to do this. I mean, you know, it's a business. So there was a lot of questions that I had. And so I just kind of went, went to the internet to kind of figure a lot of it out. 
That's interesting too, because you, you started to talk about the first steps you took. So you went to, to the internet to figure it out. What were some of the other initial steps you took? Because like you said, there's financing involved and what was like the timeline and what were the steps you kind of took? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I asked some of my friends who I knew from pharmacy school or acquaintances, colleagues that had opened up an independent pharmacy. So I did message a lot of them and they were really very insightful. They were able to help direct me and point me, you know, towards financing. And I think financing is a big one that I would like to talk about because for me, it was like, well, you need at least, you know, you're going to need 300000 to $500,000 to open up a new one. My goal was to open up one from scratch. Now, a lot of people, it's much more risky than, and than purchasing one that's already out there. But yeah. I really wanted to open up my own and put my own thoughts into it and care so for me, I, I knew I needed close to a half a million dollars. And so I looked into different types of loans that you could get. And one is the SBA loan. And that's a, a great loan. It comes through the government. And the rate is really, really good. You have 10 years to pay it back. And you typically only need about $50,000 um, as a down payment to, to do it. So what I also found were there were banks that specialize in pharmacy lending. So, oh, really? you know, you don't have to go to your local bank in your area. You can actually go to, you know, First Financial Bank is an example. They're, they're based in Arkansas, but they do these loans specifically for pharmacy all over the country. I highly recommend that they, they will work with you. They have loan officers who own pharmacies. So they're really tailored toward pharmacy ownership. So, you, like I said, you need this kind of like a little bit of a down payment. And then the rest is really just funded through through the pharmacy. You have to purchase your inventory. You have to, you know, get contracts with the insurance, the PBMs. That's what takes the longest. You contract with a PSAO, which has some of the smaller insurance companies. But then, for example, like Caremark, that one sometimes can take six months to a year. They, they make it, definitely they make it more difficult. I was fortunate enough to open up my pharmacy in an area that um, had more affluent area. And so a lot of patients wanted to just pay cash for the majority of their prescriptions. So well, that's um, we were able to, yeah, yeah. So we, you know, we got, I was fortunate with that, with, with the area. So a lot of them were just, you know, interested in paying cash and, and just getting their medication in a timely fashion. And, you know, that can make a big difference too, because as a lot, we've talked previously on this podcast, a lot of independents, their cash prices can still be less than what some of the copays are with some of the, the bigger chains and things like that, whether it be the contracting through the PBMs and whatnot. That's pretty interesting that you were able to kind of do that to make it, to get through. What did you do to really make ends meet? Since you said you had to come up with 50 grand, obviously, to be able to start the pharmacy and get the initial financing and get that rolling. Obviously, you're not profitable day one, day two, week one, week two. What did you do to kind of make ends meet until then? You have the loan and that's why you need the loan. So I think, you know, having a loan is critical. I think it gives you that money that, you know, working capital is what the correct term is. So you have the working capital to purchase, you know, you're going to need inventory. You're going to need at least $50,000 sitting on your shelves, you know, of inventory. So I think that that is a, is a big thing that the, that helps. So that's what I did until you get the first check from the insurance and you get your first payment or you get the first patient coming in, making a purchase. I mean, cash, you know, you're right. You're, you're, 
looking for that ends to meet. And so the loan is what helps to carry you over for the first couple months initially. I remember just the first patient who came in and I sold something for $10. I, I took that $10 bill and we like placed it, you know, we hung it up <laughs> in, the, in the pharmacy. It was, it was a big, a big, big moment, but um, you do need reserves because you need it for working capital. Yeah. I've always been intrigued by that myself because it's, you hear about the, you know, like you said, you might need upwards of a half million dollars to help finance this, whether it be for paying your rent, getting your inventory under control, hiring somebody, et cetera. And I always wondered kind of how you made that part of it work. So I'm glad that you said you need that working capital in the loan so you can, you know, pay your technician or pay your cashier up front if you have a front end business or pay your other pharmacist so you're not working 96 hours a week or whatever it might be. Exactly. And that's a big thing too. So for me, so there was a, a lot of great things. One is that, you know, as a mom, I it was great. It was really flexible. Um, my daughter was, I want to say she was nine months when I opened it. So she was really young and I was able to bring her to the back. We had a little area that I reserved, you know, for her to come sometimes. So it, it was very flexible as a parent, you know, when I built the space out. But you need, I had a someone who worked with me, um, a pharmacist who actually ended up buying the store outright from me. And he's a pharmacist and he was working at Rite Aid for his entire career. We graduated around the same time. So about 15 years. And he, you know, was able to work the hours that I wasn't able to work and vice versa. And I think that's really important too, because you can't be there all day and night. And some people can, some people do do that. But for me, it wasn't as much of a viable option for me. So we kind of worked out the hours together, but payroll is expensive. So if you're planning to open up a pharmacy and you're not planning to be there, you have to pay the pharmacist. And that that's probably the most expensive thing is, you know, the salary of a pharmacist. Oh yeah. We're, we're definitely our, our, our biggest asset as far as a business, but also our biggest cost liability, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, they know that part was, it worked out because he was really involved in the, in the business and the decisions, but you have to build in payroll, payroll for your tax, you know, you probably don't need a lot of technicians when you're first opening, probably just a, a part-time one if you're opening up one from scratch. But if you're opening one and you're purchasing one, let's say you're purchasing one and they're already doing 200 prescriptions a week or, you know, maybe they're slower. Some of them are doing a thousand prescriptions a week. Then you, you definitely need more more staff. Yeah. And, and more payroll to, or more working capital to pay them. Like you said. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I can't believe you were able to do all that with a nine month old. Me and my wife just had our first child and she's about seven weeks old. And man, I, I commend you because I know there's so much more burden placed on a woman when you're talking about a young child than there is the husband. And I feel like it's stressing me out in this case. <laughs> so I, I kind of commend you for that. And that's probably, probably why you're such a good leader of the pharmacist moms group. So I I think that's awesome and a, a good example to set for people that don't let it hold you back. If it's something you really want to do, you can make it happen. So that's thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Yeah, I think, you know, as a mom, you just you kind of figure it out and you roll with the punches. You figure out how it's going to work. And like I said, that's why I made that little playroom area for my daughter <laughs> in the back. I was like, you know, this is perfect. And, and, it, and it worked out, you know, so I think that there's definitely options. You know, the area that I uh, that I also worked in, I ended up met with a lot of patients. I was able to do consulting for them on on women, women's health issues. So that was kind of always my interest was women's health. So I was able to work with them. Um, I did vitamin testing in the pharmacy. So we offered different services that were available and that I could write, you know, lab work for and make recommendations for vitamins. So we, we sold a lot of vitamins at my pharmacy too. We did a lot of work um, more on a functional medicine side, I would say, okay. um, that patients were willing to pay 
you know, pay the cash for it. So we didn't have as much insurance, which was great. Yeah. And I think that's, that just shows that independence, you really have to be adaptable and kind of make your niche so that you're not just dealing with like, all I'm doing is filling prescriptions and going up against this corporate fortune 500 giant that's right across the street. But, exactly. But exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's because also, you know, the payments from the insurance are not fair. When, when I first realized, you know, about these DIR fees and, and everything that that's happening in pharmacy, it's, it's extremely upsetting. And um, I'm actually working really hard. I'm working, I'm writing letters on behalf of pharmacist moms. I'm actually working with a lot of different organizations right now, because what's happening is, is out of control. But you could dispense a medication and you get reimbursed less than what the medication costs. Yeah. So you might purchase the medication for $110 and then the insurance gives you $80 and they're like, that's all we're going to give you. Yeah. I've you had, know. I've had a representative Toledo from Florida house district 60. She's presented a PBM bill down there. Obviously Florida has a huge impact when it comes to the prescription drug market and the costs and everything with their elderly population. And she's really leading the charge on kind of reforming and fixing some of those. Obviously we have the Supreme court case coming up that, is going to open a whole can of worms, whether it goes one way or the other. So there's a lot of stuff that they need to hear from people like you who've owned a pharmacy and who are advocating for pharmacists who don't necessarily have themselves gagged or bound by some contract or where they work. So I'm glad you're doing that too. And you've, you know, the games they play because you own the business. Yeah, that- it's, it's crazy. The letter I just wrote right now was for the state of Virginia, you know, just talking about that, what pharmacists can do and that they need to really make change for, for pharmacists and what's going on. Yeah, they've been having some good changes down there in very lopsided, if not unanimous, voting decisions by their legislators. So it's good to see that Virginia is really, really taking a stance on this and taking heed of what all the pharmacists are saying and listening to it and putting us in a spot so we can practice at the top of our education and also really help our patients in the best possible fashion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So with some of that, obviously you said you weren't fully aware of all the PBM games and some of the DIR fees and kind of all the different things that they play. How did those impact your business and kind of what was that like a limiting factor or what, what aspect did that play in your business for better or worse? Yeah, it definitely impacted my business. I I was very surprised when, like I said, when I first figured out the game and I was looking at the reimbursement and I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're, you know, we're losing money on this. And so what I really tried to focus on then at that point was the cash business. And so I know that as a pharmacist and I've always believed, I love pharmacy. I can talk about how wonderful being a pharmacist is um, for hours and hours and hours. If you, you know, if that's all I talk about. I, I, I love <laughs> pharmacy. So, so I knew as a pharmacist that people would pay for my services. I, I knew, I knew that um, whatever I wanted to offer that people would pay me for it. And granted, I was in a more affluent area, but I, I just knew that patients want to hear from their pharmacists. They trust us. They trust what we have to say. And initially people might say, well, I remember telling some of my friends, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to charge for every blood pressure monitoring that I do. And then they're like, no, we do them for free at our chain. Why would you charge? You're crazy. I'm like, I'm going to charge, you know, and, and I started to charge $20 and I would sit with the patient for 20 minutes and they would have be able to ask me questions. And sometimes it would be less than 20 minutes and, you know, but I would still charge a $20, but it, I think that's important. And I would do the vitamins too. I would ask them, you know, are you feeling fatigued? Are you feeling this? Are you, you know, if you're taking a stand, maybe you need to take CoQ10 with it. You know, have you been on CoQ10 before? Because we know that you might probably need it if you've been on a stand for so long. And so I took that approach where it was like, 
okay, this is what they're taking for treatment. This is where I might be losing money here, but how can I help the patient in a different way and show them that the pharmacist really matters? And, you know, the pharmacy really did take off, I would say, you know, within a few months from the relationships, really. And it was just pure word of mouth that really helped the pharmacy to take off. And what also helped is that there were chain pharmacies. There's one right down the road that they were doing. I mean, it's a major chain and they were doing, I want to say like 500 or 600 a day. Like they are, they're very, very busy. They have two pharmacists there sometimes. So that helped us actually, because patients wanted a slower store in the sense that they had more time with the pharmacist. And, you know, and so that, that also helped our healthcare business too. Yeah. Cause they get to see the service and what you do and show that you, you show them that you care about their health. So it might be slower, but you're taking the time. And I think that's one of the important things you hit on with the blood pressure charge that you were charging people to check their blood pressure was you were taking the time to explain it to them. And I know I've had this happen where I've had to take someone's blood pressure and it's a certain number. And they say, oh, well, that's better than what it was. But it was like, you know, 160 over 95. You're like, well, that's really not where it needs to be. But, you know, and so you you give them, you throw like a couple things at them. Like, hey, watch your eating, watch sodium, you know, et cetera. You know, maybe we'll talk to the doctor about your medications. But you really don't have time. And there's no incentive currently in most of the chains for you to spend that time with that person to help get their medication better under control. We already know that a lot of the physicians and people like that are just worn out with the amount of patients they have to see and the limited time and limited actions they have. They might say something to a patient. Obviously, people do take what their physicians say. They take it to heart. But having someone that can spend that time who has a similar level of education in healthcare to sit down and go over it with them could mean a huge difference in their longevity and if they're going to have a heart attack down the road because now they understood what's high in sodium. They understood what what good blood pressure looks like. Same thing applies to diabetes and, you know, any of these other chronic disease states we have. So Definitely. I I mean, and I think that we undervalue ourselves. I can tell you I was charging for a one-hour consult, and I was seeing about 10 patients a week sometimes. I was charging $250 for the one-hour consult. Oh, wow. And I know when I tell people, they're like, really? But it worked. You know, initially I, I was scared, uh, but I uh, have a friend who has a, a functional medicine clinic and she told me, listen, patients, they want this knowledge. They'll, you know, they'll, she's a physician and she really helped me with determining what my value was as a pharmacist. And so oh, I decided awesome. that, you know, in the pharmacy, I was going to have this nice room, this great room where I can do consults in private and you know, we had the front end and we had the traditional pharmacy all set up, but really where we knew that what patients wanted was more time. So I would spend the time with them. I would spend an hour and patients coming in for like burning mouth syndrome and Lyme disease treatment and, you know, just different things that they said that they would go to their doctor and they didn't have all their questions answered and they wanted to spend time with the pharmacist. And, you know, the, I'll be honest, the first time I said the price to a patient, I felt bad. I'm like, wait, am I really going to tr- like, wait, what did I just say? And when they said yes, and, you know, and then more and more patients were actually recommending, you know, their sisters, their brothers, their, their friends, and to come to get these consults, it, it made me feel very confident that as a pharmacist, people respect our opinions, and we can, you know, actually charge for service, we don't need to just charge for dispensing. 
Yeah, and I think interesting thing you said was the two hundred fifty dollar point, which you that stuck out to me because I think of everything as far as price points and what we get reimbursed from MTMs, and those seem to keep falling these days when we're yes. we're, we're working those and seeing some of them that you're supposed to go through a patient's entire history, their entire med list, optimize it, adjust doses, make recommendations, and I think the payment form now is depending if you do it over the phone or in person between. 45 and 65 dollars and some patients yeah you might knock it out in 10 minutes they might have three things and the insurance company just wanted you to make sure they were good but then you have those patients who have 20 meds there's no right. way you can really i mean you really need a full hour to sit there and dive in and do a deep dive into that because not only is it just 20 meds there's problems associated with almost any one of those medications you have to look for whether it be side effects dosing changes etc and then look at how it fits in the person's lifestyle if they're you know if they're on 20 meds okay do we really need all these can we back this off can we help time them up can we switch sure. some things around and then you know assessing things like blood pressure in that and that's why i think that that 250 dollar point it might sound like a lot but given the benefit of it over time that's practically nothing so I think exactly. that's yeah, and then there's prep before and after too. I think like you know, as a clinician, you have to prep before the visit. Yep. So I was going in prepared. It wasn't like I was walking into the see the patient and I didn't review anything. I had no clue who they were, and you know. And then there's afterwards. You want to have your notes. You want to send them links. You want to send them articles, and you establish a relationship. So I think that, you know, all that time that you spend um, with with the patient can make a difference. Just curious, what. Was the rate or maybe how many patients did you see that would, because of a contract with the PBM, go down the road to insert chain pharmacy and then come to where you work and then have you go over all their medications with them? Did that happen a lot? Yes, it happened a lot. I, at least half, you know, and, and unfortunately, we lost some patients because of the contracts with the PBM. So they were, you know, they were required to go to X chain, you know, and that was that was hard. And so we would try to figure out and like I said, some patients, I had some, I mean, they said, we'll just pay cash, you know, especially for the generics, they were just, you know, going to pay the cash price because it was cheaper than their copay a lot of times anyway. So, so we were fortunate enough not to, to lose those patients. But PBMs make it difficult. They they make it difficult. They don't want us to succeed. I think we have to get the word out there on what they're doing and how, you know, they are impacting our, our profession and that we need to speak up more as pharmacists. But I think, you know, the other thing we can do is we can offer services as pharmacists. We are trained. At, I went to University of Illinois and I, I taught there as well. Um, I was, you know, the assistant dean for academic affairs. So I oversaw a lot of the curriculum. And I know that that curriculum is a strong curriculum that we were training and I was trained as a, as a clinical pharmacist, really. I mean, that, that we learned so, so many things, so many topics. And it, I was a very, I had very strong clinical training from, from my education. And so I wanted to actually use it. Yeah. And I'm excited to see what some of these states are rolling out with, whether it be the, I don't want to use the term OTC, but like the OTC, I guess, HIV medications and consults. It's the the birth control that we can dispense, strep yeah. tests, flu tests. There's a, whole, a lot of that stuff that's kind of rolling down the pipeline in various states. And that would help an independent pharmacy who can take that time to care for the person, which I think is is key. And you really, obviously, are a very innovative person when it comes to thinking of some of these things. I wouldn't have thought to necessarily charge someone like that, or I might not have thought to charge one for a blood pressure screening. And I like to pride myself on being usually pretty good at figuring out solutions. What was, was there a process that you looked at to be so innovative or to think of these ideas? Like what, what was the way you kind of analyzed it to think of this? You know what? I, I don't know. I didn't really, (laughs) I, it just happened. You know, I think as a mom, as a woman, 
Um, I talk to a lot of people if I'm at the park or wherever I'm at. I just, you know, wherever I, wherever I go, I just start babbling <laughs> with, with others. So, um, you know, I think that's what helped to generate some of these ideas. And some of just my, my friends from the colleagues that, I, that I've worked with throughout the course of my my career have also helped and, and things like this, like what you're doing, you know, listening to podcasts. I'm really big into TED Talks. I listen to a lot of TED Talks. And um, and then sometimes you just get an idea that, you know, that happens. But I think we have to begin to think outside of the box. You know, as a profession, we can't continue to do the same the same things over and over. I think that, you know, we need to we need to make change for for our profession. Yeah, and I really like that because it shows the value of having a pharmacist in the community and the, the value that's not there when pharmacies close and get shut down and they're forced to dri- patients are forced to drive farther is you don't know what that community needs. Now that you're not in that community or you're not talking to those people, not just as a pharmacist, but out and about in the community, you're finding solutions like, hey, people need to talk about their medications. They don't fully understand this. Or, hey, people want to understand what blood pressure is and how it can be managed in this case. And you went ahead and just implemented those because you had that autonomy to do it with your own pharmacy. And I think that's huge. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I think that that's a big part of it. And the, you know, and as you're talking, I think the other thing is relationships with physicians. I think that one thing that I, I always worked on was establishing relationships with physicians who I knew that I knew what they couldn't do in their offices. So they would tell me like one of my good friends is a pediatrician and she would say, no, I only have time for X, Y, and Z, but I don't have time to counsel them on, you know, sunscreen and this and that. And so can you do that? Can you, you know, and I think that that is, you know, something where I started to think, well, as a pharmacist, yeah, I can counsel on sunscreen. So every patient that comes in, you know, I need to ask them, what are you using for sunscreen? What, you know, what sunscreen do you think is best? Have you read this recent article? And so I think that too, we can see where physicians might not have the time and then we can fill fill that void. One thing there, obviously, the physician relationship with pharmacies is huge, but we've seen where multiple physicians, I know around me, they stop taking refill requests from pharmacies because they get so many auto-generated ones, whether it be from a mail order pharmacy that just sends it constantly or the 90-day supply changes, whatever it is, they see so many of them, they get burned out and get a bad taste from that pharmacy. You might not have had those going on, but because of that, you were able to build a relationship with them, which is kind of the key to everything we're doing here in healthcare. So I think that kind of just shows the value of independence by maybe not automating away every single process in the in the pharmacy chain, if you will. Agree. Yeah, definitely. So one thing I wanted to ask you, obviously you had a pharmacy that was pretty profitable. You said you sold it. And I assume, is he still open today? He is still open. Yeah, he's doing okay. well. I mean, he's, yeah, he's open. He worked with me. Like I said, he, he just had a lot more time than me to do it. And so I still I work there sometimes per diem, but, but yeah, no, he's still, he's still open and it's doing well. It's hard to give something up you start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still, I still love that pharmacist. So on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being all but impossible, one being no problem whatsoever, how hard was it to be profitable? Uh, initially <laughs> I would say um, it was hard. It was, you know, seven or an eight, you know, because there wasn't anything coming in and it was very hard to withstand that. I think, Initially, when you're seeing, you know, you purchase the inventory, you make all these purchases and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this is expensive. But after I would say after the year point, um, about a year into the business is where I started to feel very confident that this was going to succeed and that this, you know, this was a, a good decision. Okay. Yeah. And I've always been curious about that myself just because you, you hear all the news about independent pharmacies closing, whether they're bought out. I guess you were bought out, but not by a chain. It's a little different there. 
whether they're bought up by a chain or they're forced out by PBM and DIR fees or what their state limits them to do so they couldn't do some of these other services maybe like you were talking about. So I just always kind of wondered if you put in a numerical value on it, how hard it really was. Yeah, I mean, I, from the PBM side, it, it's very hard. They make it extreme. I would say they make it a 10. They try their hardest for us not to succeed. But I, I definitely think that we were able to succeed still. I think that, you know, we're able to do, you know, a lot. You, you just have to really think outside the box. So I have to ask, because this is the next thing that everyone's going to ask, is have you ever thought about opening another pharmacy? Or what did you ever think about <laughs> opening a second one after you opened that one? Kind of what was your thought process on that? So at the time, yes, we we were thinking about opening up another one similar to the, the one that we had. But for me, because of other things that happened and then everything with pharmacist moms and different things happening um, with my career and what I was doing, I, you know, I don't have plans to open up another one. I could help and, you know, if anyone's interested, but I, I don't have plans at this point to open up a, another one. Okay. I just, but I'll never say never because I, you know, you never know what's going to happen in your life. I never thought I'd be living in New Jersey. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just had to ask because it, it, when you, when you start something so successful and I can tell you that passion for it, it sparks a fire in you. And you know, was it going to, was it going to reignite itself at some point or what was going to go on with that? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if somebody was open their own pharmacy, what advice would you give them today? Maybe, maybe three ideas if you or whatever you think are like the top ideas you have. So I think the first one is to have a mentor or to work with somebody, someone who can help, who's either done this before, who has their own pharmacy. So I, I think that you need that person or to, to talk to. It's really important. So they can tell you what they did well, what didn't go so well. When you are getting nervous about certain questions you might have that, you know, they'll tell you, no, ride this through. It's, it's going to be okay. Um, so I think that's really important. I think financing is important. I think even if you have the cash that, you know, the rates are so good for SBA loans that it's still worth it to finance it and have the working capital. I, I think that's that's critical so that you don't get stuck while, you know, making a purchase and you didn't get the payment yet from the insurance. So I think a loan is is critical. I think it's it's really important. And I think there are different you know, companies, different wholesalers that you could work with. Well, I think that's another recommendation. So selecting the right wholesaler for you is important, whether it's Cardinal or McKesson, Amerisource, there's, you know, there's a, quite a few out there. So making sure you select the best one so that you get the best pricing for the drugs that you're going to put on your shelves. Okay. So just to recap that, finding a mentor or mentors who've been there before, obviously, I think that's probably the most important thing if, if I had a guess. And then financing, getting something like an SBA loan, just because you need that capital in case you get in a pinch or, you know, like you said, you didn't get a payment from the PBM and it took six months to get payment, what have you. And then finding the right wholesaler with the right contract so that you have the best pricing possible. I think that's a pretty good yeah. recap. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else you want to share with the listeners at all from your experience of, from owning a pharmacy? I think, you know, if you're hesitant or you're, you're thinking about it or you're, you know, you're not. You're not enjoying your job right now. I think that it's definitely an option. Uh, like I said, when I was in school, I didn't think of it as a career path, but it can be, you know, and I, I would encourage people to consider it. I think that it definitely can be. There are struggles, but if you can think of ways to earn profit outside of the typical dispensing fees, then, then it's really, it definitely is a, a great option for a pharmacist. And that could change here with some of these rulings that we're seeing coming down the pipeline. But I think that's great advice no matter what in pharmacy, no matter what changes, you're going to have to 
make sure you adapt with our profession, especially in the next couple of years here, just to make sure that you get by, you stay on top of it and to make sure that you're doing the best for the patients too. So that's, that's great advice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Two questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. If you could change Uh-oh. one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Wow. Let me think. That's a... So I love pharmacies, so it's, it's hard to, to say if I could change one thing. You know, I guess for me, it would be more the public's perception of what a pharmacist could do. Not necessarily, you know, again, people think that the pharmacist is just limited to giving out the medication. So improving awareness of all, all, you know, whether it's our education and all the things we were trained on and so that we can be reimbursed for, for some of these things, I think would be um, something that I would change. Yeah, I think that's, we're one of the most relied on aspects of healthcare, but one of the most underutilized people yes. in healthcare. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's an answer I totally agree with. If you could change one law about pharmacy, be it federal or state, what would it be and why? <laughs> okay, it would be the, for pharmacists to be able to do Botox on patients. Really? Just sounds crazy, but I got that question all the time. Patients would come in and be like, can you, I know you can get a flu shot, but can you do Botox on me? And so I went and I researched the laws and we weren't, pharmacists are not able to, at least in my state um, that I was working, were able to um, give Botox. And so the reason why is that that's another area of revenue for pharmacists. If we were able to, you know, inject Botox, we're able to, you know, give immunization. So I I think that if we were able to do the training that nurse practitioners could do and, you know, PAs can attend, I think if we were able to, to do that, I think that would be another area where a lot of independent pharmacies could um, expand their services. Yeah. I, I never thought about that one. That's a new one for this podcast for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd be, I'd be more interested in hearing some of that training on that. So that's definitely something to look up at a later date for myself for sure. Because as of right now, I don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. I just don't know the, the topic well enough when it comes to that. Yeah. I think I dealt with a lot of, you know, where I was working, just the, the area I worked in. So I got that question often, but it was like, I'm like, yeah, why can't we? Why can't I just go to this, you know, this training that the nurse practitioners are attending? Why, you know, I'm a PharmD, why can't I go? And, but, it, you know, the laws have to change first, though. So. Yeah, and I think scope of practice is key with that. We're not talking about Botox injections to prevent, like, migraines and things like that. We're talking about more superficial, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just want to make sure we're have the right scope in that. We're not looking about yeah. doing neurological Botox or anything crazy. No. <laughs> awesome. No. Hey, um, just want to, again, state this out there. Pharmacist Moms is a good way people can find you and access you. Uh, you have a huge following on Facebook on every social media. It's a great follow, too. I actually follow you guys and love some of the stuff you have in there. So Pharmacist Moms is a great way to find you. Where else can people find you on social media or what have you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, they can find me on Instagram. Pharmacist Mom Susie is my name. Yeah, and probably just, you know, also you can visit our website, www.pharmacistmomsgroup.com. So any any of those places, you should be able to find me. I'm all, Yeah, I'm all over social. So you, can, <laughs> you can find me easily on social media. Yeah, Susie Solomon, uh, last name S-O-L-I-M-A-N, since there's no spelling mix up there. Yes. I, know, <laughs> I know people spell my name wrong and it drives me nuts. So I want to make sure you we get that out there for you. Yes, perfect. Thank you. Uh, awesome. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate it. You've definitely... You definitely have a passion that rubs off on me. It makes me excited. And I love the I love the way that you're able to think outside the box with a lot of these ideas you have. And I think that's that, that's a sign of a good role model in pharmacy. So if anyone wants to follow her on LinkedIn, I highly encourage it. I follow her there too and love almost everything she posts. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And listeners, if you can leave me a five-star review, I highly appreciate that. Or write a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, pretty much every podcast platform now. So if you can leave us a review, that helps people find us a lot. And as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Thank you.